Earth to Brit can be found wherever you go for your next podcast fix. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is Earth to Brit Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Earth to Brit Pod. Emails can be sent to earth to Brit.podcast at gmail.com. The podcast website is www.anchor.fm slash earth to Brit. Remember, Brit is spelled with two T's. B-R-I-T-T. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is a Yellow Wave production. Brit here. Uh, By the way, you are listening to Earth to Brit. Hope that that was your intention. Uh, There's been a lot going on. I feel like that's kind of the motto for 2020. And while a lot of people are expressing their hate for 2020 and how much they can't stand it, I get that everything that's happening is super uncomfortable and painful in so many ways that we can't even touch all the levels today. So I'm not going to try. The way I look at it is this was a long time coming. I was actually talking to somebody about this earlier today. It feels like the universe was like the, the, that exasperated mother who's told her kids a hundred times to do right. Like just act right kids for the love of God, act right. You know what I mean? Um, And then we don't. And so a hundred years past due is basically what's happening right now all across the board. And this is just like a way to kind of make it understandable, or at least from my point of view. And it's like the universe is, I'm I'm comparing the universe and then that mom who's just had enough and cannot stop saying, can you guys just be normal, act right, do what you're supposed to do. And we don't listen as kids. So just think of that. And finally, when it's like when you tell your kids a hundred times to do something and they don't, you just you roll your sleeves up and you do the damn thing. Because if they're not going to, forces are going to happen to where it's not an option anymore. Like I've given you every option, every chance, and you still didn't do it. So now I'm going to have to do it for you because you, you can't be left to your own devices. And we're still continuing to prove that to this day. That's just my two cents on it, kind of, because I have a lot of opinions on it, but I'm not saying that any of them are fact. Just wanted to share that one because... A lot of people seem to feel the same way, or at least they're able to relate to that kind of a description. Uh, So yeah, I guess let me know if you have one for yourself that you've been using. But unfortunately, (laughs) I'm here to bring something super disturbing to you. Um, This happened a while ago. Doesn't change the fact that it's really sick. And I do, this is kind of like a little intro and disclaimer. This is a child crime. And it's not just a child's crime. There are lots of graphic details. And I'm not even sure how this is going to go. I know that while I was reading it, I just, I mean, I've heard about this case for a while now. But when I was reading it and researching it to get familiar with it so I could bring it to you, 
Oh, it's just a heavy one. And I feel like these are heavy times. And so as badly as I want to look away from that and kind of not dissociate, what am I trying to think? Distract. I don't think that that's going to do anything because distracting ourselves is kind of just only elongated and made the problem last longer. Did I even just make sense? I have found this past week, by the way, I've been saying things don't even I'm like replacing words that are close, but not correct. And it's super funny, but it's actually alarming because words are so important to me. And I really like to use them correctly. So it's been a week where I'm just very full of humble pie. I've had my filling and then some and I'm still eating it apparently. So I hope that makes sense. Either way, this is a heavy, heavy subject. And I know that there are heavy things going on in the world, but this happened. This is a true story and it needs to be heard. And I think that I can give that to you in a way that is respectful and hopefully you can learn something from it. But I did want to let you know this is a child crime and the worst part is it's okay. So it's a child killing another child, but the ages are, the ages are really rough for me. So, which is crazy to think about because a human life is a human life. It's just these little nuances that we as humans put on things to make them better than less than more important, less important, like a hierarchy within a hierarchy, but it's natural. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just calling myself out on it. Um, so the perpetrator is 13 at the time of the crime and the person who was murdered is four and it doesn't help that he's so freaking cute that it makes me want to throw up again hierarchy of hierarchy like that doesn't matter it wouldn't it shouldn't matter what this person looks like it shouldn't matter what age they are boy or girl however i'm giving you the facts so that you can decide for yourself if you are able to handle this or if you even want to try I urge you to do that if you can, because things aren't always comfortable. In fact, a lot of times they are uncomfortable, but that's for a reason. And again, like I said, and like I say every week, this happened, this happened, and this story matters, and it needs to be heard and not forgotten for several reasons, out of respect, out of memory, out of the ability to possibly learn, um, and to just not forget this child and his family and You know, there's going to be some scientific aspects to it about studying the person who committed the crime. I mean, there's a lot to pack in and I'm going to do my very best. And uh, yeah, basically you do you, you know yourself better than I do, but I do urge you to at least try to listen to this because it is so impactful. Okay, let's go. Eric M. Smith, if you Google this name, you'll find that he is an American criminal who was born on January 22, 1980. He's incarcerated for the murder, sexual abuse, and mutilation of four-year-old Derek Roby, who was born on October 2, 1988. This murder took place on August 2, 1993 in Steuben County, New York. According to court documents, Smith was a loner, and he was a lot of the time bullied, beaten up, all that stuff. 
And it's claimed that a lot of that reasoning, which this again shows his age, and I will tell you his age if you didn't listen to the intro in just a second, but just listen to this reasoning for why he was bullied. He had ears that were low set kind of, and they stuck out. He wore thick glasses. He had red hair and freckles. Okay, that's why he was bullied. I'm not okay with that, and I hope you're not either. Um, so he was 13 when this took place. And like we mentioned just a second ago, Derek Roby, the victim, was four years old. Obviously, and it, I mean, this shouldn't come as a surprise, this murder made national headlines. And I think we can attribute a big part of that to their ages. It's wild. So Eric, <clears throat> excuse me, attracted, by the way, I'm just going to do a quick little synopsis and then we'll get into it. Eric attracted Derek to a secret, like remote, not very populated location that was in a park. And that's where he strangled Derek. And then he also dropped a pair of large rocks on his head. Then he undressed his body and sodomized him with a tree limb. A lot more happened, which again, we'll get into, but the main cause of death was determined to be blunt trauma to the head with contributing asphyxia. Devastating, if you think about it. I mean, it all is, but the fact that the blunt force trauma and he was choking, I mean, excuse me, wasn't able to breathe at the same time. It's a lot going on and it's a four-year-old and it's hard not to want to cry right now thinking about that, but it happened and it's just... It's mind-blowing, but we'll get into more reasons why, especially because we'll hear from Eric uh, via certain interviews, one of them with Dan Rather. And if you're anything like me and you, when you hear this, you're going to not be so quick to hate him. Like, I don't hate anyone in this story. I want to understand, but it's also like, (sighs) I don't know. I think there's a huge opportunity here for something, some sort of study, reform, something. I could be wrong. I don't have the actual super facts, just what we know as public knowledge. But we'll see. Let me know if you have the same thoughts once we're done with this whole thing. Uh, Let's see. Okay, so two days after Derek's funeral, Eric admitted to killing him. Again, a lot more happens to lead up to that, but... It was only two days after the funeral that that happens. And then in 1994, Eric was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to the maximum, excuse me, the maximum term that was then available for uh, juvenile murderers, which was a minimum of nine years to life in prison. So Eric has been denied parole five times since 2002, most recently in April 2010. By the way, that's as of this article. There's been more since then. I think it's like every two years it happens, but uh, that's the last as far as my research got into. And okay, see, here we go. At the time of this article, he was next eligible for parole in 2012. So yes, every two years, standard pretty much. So regardless of the times, just picture this every two years, if he's granted parole, Eric has stated that he has an intent, he intends to return to Savona, which is, I know I said Steuben County, but uh, Savona is the actual town name where this happened and where he lived before. He was held in a juvenile facility for six years, and then in 2001, he was transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, New York, and that's a maximum security prison. 
As of now, he is still at that facility. The Innocence Project was founded in 1992 by Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck at Cardozo School of Law, and it exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. The Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. To get involved, you can go to www. Dot innocenceproject.org and join a movement of 800,000 plus supporters on a mission toward criminal justice reform. Your contribution helps us continue the fight for criminal justice reform and exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals. Every action makes a difference. As a little bit of a fun fact, not really that fun considering the topic, um, he was diagnosed, <clears throat> excuse me, by a defense psychiatrist with intermittent explosive disorder. By the way, we're talking about Eric. Uh, and that is a mental disorder causing individuals to be violent and unpredictable. And then the prosecution comes back with, they said that it was a rare disorder and was rarely seen at Eric's age. So Eric was subjected to extensive medical testing from specialists on both sides. And they examined his brain function, hormone levels, and they found nothing to explain his violent behavior. Um, however, it is known later on, it emerges that during her pregnancy, Eric's mom took an epilepsy drug, tridione, and that's known to cause birth defects. So it's kind of been speculated, uh, that that contributed to his later violent behavior because he was also bullied so much. And that kind of, for anyone, it, it allows for a person to build up rage. Basically, it's like, it adds more, think of a bucket. And then each time you're bullied or something like that, the stones are being added to the bucket and it's getting filled up and it's just lying dormant, waiting for whatever it is that makes it snap. And who knows what that is or what it's going to be. Also, who knows how many people are walking around with their, their buckets almost full or people who never snap or people who do. I mean, it's, it's a wild thing to think about psychology and you, and we, the thing about it is it, it's something that can't be physically seen so to speak. So it's hard to prove, but it's, it's still obviously there things like that. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm just, I think we're on the cusp. I think we're on the edge of some seriously new discoveries scientifically for psychology and brains and the way we think and, um, correlations between all of that stuff. Go listen to killer brains, by the way. I can't remember what episode it is, but it's season two and there's a specialist I talk a lot about in that one and it is so fascinating it's crazy but yeah I think that that is interesting about that drug that she took and also I don't I'm not judging anyone first and foremost let me just say that right now but I don't care if a drug is deemed safe or not during pregnancy don't take it I mean don't obviously there are certain situations where that's not really an option, but I just think that people are so lax in what they take or don't take and they're just so trusting, but you can't, even the things that are deemed safe, you can't possibly know how the chemistry of that is going to affect the chemistry of you and how your chemistry is affecting the baby's chemistry and how the baby's chemistry is ex affecting the medicine's chemistry. I mean, it's, there are too many variables for me to comfortably condone that ever. 
Um, again, there are situations, so I shouldn't say ever, but now we're going to talk about just like a whole cluster of people, including Eric and little bits and pieces of the case and what happened and afterthought and just a lot of stuff. And I'm, I'm, my goal is to do it in a way that is easy to follow and make sense, but I also don't want it this to be a rigid episode. I want it to just flow and feel natural. So let's hope that I succeed at that. So there was an interview done with Eric and he was 24 at the time. And in this interview, he had long red hair. So obviously his hair is still red, duh. long red hair, thick glasses. Um, and his prison uniform was noted as seeming one size too big. So basically it shows this gangly kid who when you hear this crime it he doesn't match the crime he never did and it's still alarming but we know he did it it's just it's super crazy and eerie how looks are so deceiving all the way across the board for good and bad it's just so wild how trusting we are when certain things check off what we need for things to be okay just visually when that doesn't mean anything just a friendly reminder. <laughs> uh, so that's when they did that interview and, and talked about his appearance and where a lot of this information I'm going to be talking about comes from. But when it happened, the crime, he was 13, like I said. And that's, can you picture back when you were 13? Okay, good. Now just keep that in mind. So also picture, yeah, you did a crime so he was at the center of a media storm that makes sense but picture being at the center of a media storm at 13 regardless of how you got there I don't know that any 13 year old is equipped for that then again I don't know that any 13 year old is equipped for murder but that's where I'm saying this case is so it you have to think about it it makes you stop and question things and it should and you should always but this one kind of forces our hand in that regard so his age, his red hair, his glasses. It's just crazy because he, what's worse? Okay, so it's crazy because no one believed it. And it's also crazy because he could have gotten away with murder. I don't think that that should have been what happened. But had he not spoken up, I don't know that they would have really figured that out. I mean, eventually, maybe, but so many unsolved cases out there, you can't say that that's true, that they would have figured it out because you don't know that. And when you see this, it's like, Chucky on Rugrats, but with a little shorter hair. No, you know what I mean? It's like, I just, it's, it's just mind blowing that he really could have and probably should have gotten away with this, but he admitted it. Thank goodness. Um, and actually what I just said, that's one of the things that frightened most people, but John Tunney, who was the prosecutor said that he, he is still to this day afraid because of how, the juxtaposition of the two it they just didn't match up and that is terrifying because logic your brain wants to make things make sense and that doesn't make sense no matter which way you turn it like a a rubik's cube it's never going to make sense it's not like a rubik's cube because you can't make it make sense what you're seeing is so in a fight with what is oh it's wild enough of that i think you get the point (laughs) Uh, it just maybe look up this kid. If you don't look, go on the social media and see the pictures I post, look him up because you. I think you'll understand why I'm so hung up on this once you see him. Um, he also, Tunny, the prosecutor says every time the parole comes up, he is 
so nervous and that no matter what Eric says or what anyone says, his fear of him, this prosecutor's fear of Eric is still as strong as day one. I think whether or not that's true or if it's just for show, that says a lot and that is alarming and rightfully so. So like we mentioned, it was 1994 that he was convicted and basically the jury was unanimous. They found him guilty in the second degree. Like there were no issues no one held back. Everyone was on like everyone raised your hand. Everyone raised their hand type situation. So Eric's parents named Ted and Tammy were obviously devastated by the verdict as anyone would be. They, okay. So here's the thing though. They were convinced that Eric was sick and they were also devastated that he'd be sentenced to the maximum sentence, nine years to life in prison and I don't know that they necessarily thought that he should be free, but they were more concerned about where he was going and how he'd be treated versus getting actual mental help. However, I don't know that he needed the mental help. That's not for any of us to decide. That's just, I'm giving you the facts that I have so that you can have all the information out there and make your own opinion that way. So Dale and Doreen Roby, that's Derek's mom and dad, when the verdict came out, they cried with relief, again, obvious, but they are quoted often as saying that they had no idea that they were also being sentenced because all the time they are asked, how many kids do you have? Which every mom out there, every woman out there, really, even if you don't have kids, can you imagine losing a child and losing a child in this way and then having to say, like, what would you say? Because I know I'd want to count that child, so I would still say that. I would say, say I had three others, I'd say four. Personally, I don't know. I, I mean, I do know I would say that. But um, she basically says that she just tells them how many, how many kids she has. I have a one boy here at home and I have another boy in heaven. Um, I don't know that I'd want to invite the conversation if I said that, but that's not, I'm not judging. I just don't think I'd want that extra question or sympathy or anything like that. So this brother that she has, not she, this boy that she has at home, which would be Derek's younger brother. He is 12 at the time of this, which is written in 2004. And he mentions that he basically has always felt that he's grown up in the shadow of his brother's death, which makes sense. And he is quoted as saying, all I really know is that I had a brother. Sometimes I just think about him and just start to cry. And that's so sad because for where do I start? the things that they didn't get to experience together, the things that they didn't, that he didn't get to know about his brother, the things that he's probably already forgotten, well, for sure has forgotten about his brother, the things he never even knew to begin with. I mean, it's just, can you imagine knowing that you had a brother or a sister, but never remembering them? I feel like it sounds easy, but it's not. I feel like people hear that and think, well, at least you never knew. But I th also think it's important to not forget the fact that that's not, that doesn't make it easy at all. That probably makes it a lot harder. I mean, I don't know. I can't even get into that right now because uh, it's just like I get so philosophical sometimes. Let's see. What else was I going to start with next? Um, okay, so the last time that he was up for parole, again, everything I'm saying is as far as this article time-wise, so 2004. Um. Basically, can you, so the Roby family, the entire family, every time it comes up, which is every two years, they just struggle so hard to 
keep their fear in check. Can you imagine? It's like, it's like a, a wound that it starts to not ever go away. It's never going to go away, but starts to scab over enough to where it hurts a little bit less, even though it's always there. And then right when you think like, okay, this is finally a level I think I can tolerate. It's ripped open again because of parole again. But also I get parole because it, it need, it's a it's a fundamental right. It You guys, this is just crazy. The whole thought process I have with all of the variables and there is no right or wrong. It's just so crazy because I can see both sides. And sometimes that really is hard to do episodes like this because I'm telling you one thing and I'm not saying it as a statement of opinion. I mean, a fact. It's a, it's just the facts. It's not my fact. It's just a fact of the case. And then I say another fact of the opposite side, and it sounds like I'm being very contradictive. And I'm, but I'm not. It's it is what it is, which says everything. The fact that I'm just giving you facts, and they sound like they're warring with each other, but they're zero percent opinion, only fact. That says everything, right? Which just goes to show, it's just so much more difficult than we can even imagine, especially once we really start digging into this, these situations and things like this and the ins and outs of cases and things that most the most normal people don't have experience with because you're not going to parole for the person who murdered your son. You know what I mean? All right. So just keep that in mind too. Just some little information to always think about. So Dale, which is Derek's dad, says that he's told a lot of times that people think that they need to forgive and he admits I can't do that yet. And I understand because that's your right. I mean, forgiveness is the hardest thing ever. And it's like also very wishy-washy because it means different things to different people. So we're not going to touch that, but I don't blame him. He has that right, whatever. Um, what else is really sad to think about is that summer that he was murdered, which was 1993. He was coming up fast on his fifth birthday. I mean, such a little baby. So now we're going to talk like a little bit, just memory lane, people talking about Derek. He was all boy all the time, which I know boys will be boys type thing is bullshit. But I think what they're saying is he was just down to get dirty. And that's not to say that girls can't. I'm just explaining the expression. Okay. Because this was long before that kind of movement took a real big upswing in everyday life. Thank God for that. But all the same. So he was really just wild child, but good. Like he just liked to play and get dirty and stuff like that. Uh, apparently he was known as the unofficial mayor of Savona, which again, that's the town they lived in. It's a tiny little town in Western New York and it has a population of 970. So when, when you see the news headlines, if you Google this or see the pictures I post, and you see like the small town frame at the top headline, we really mean a small freaking town. I mean, that's tiny. Uh, his mom, Doreen, talks about how he would sit on the corner on his bike and wave to all the cars that go by and how everyone remembers him doing that and talks to her about that. And I couldn't help but smile thinking of it because reading about him, it's just like I seriously think he's the cutest little thing looking at him and he just... Sounds like the happiest boy in all honesty. The pictures of him look a lot like all the pictures of my husband when he was little. 
And you guys, this is, I noticed that after I decided to do this case. So don't worry, that's not why I did it. And then reading about him, the things he says and does, did, said and did, make me think of my son. So not ideal. Again, I was already committed and in it to win it, but damn, did that not make it even harder to commit because seriously, it's like I can't escape. I'm either thinking about my husband or my son and just innocent children. It's just wild. This is just so sad, but it's, it's important to talk about because this happens like kids kill. There was books about it, movies about it. Anyway, um, where are we at here? Where are we at? Okay, so we're talking about him doing the cars thing, and that's so cute. And then we're as far as Eric, he grew up just across town and was known to like to spend time with his grandparents named Red and Edie Wilson. Uh, her, his grandpa says he'd always come in and give us hugs and kisses and that he liked being a clown. And then his grandma talks about how he definitely wanted to be paid attention to. But... Not in the way that he was, because like we mentioned, that bright red hair and those freckles and the glasses and the ears, for whatever freaking reason, it makes me so angry. Like who, kids are so horrible, seriously. Teach your kids not to be horrible, please. Um, this, this made him a huge target at school for years. And he was seen pedaling around town on his bikes for hours on end, all alone. That's devastating that's so sad all kids want even the introverts they want other kids they want other friends and they want to do things with other people to see this kid for hours just riding his bike alone is so that break it really does it breaks my heart so during the summer of 93 eric attended this like summer camp situation they call it a recreation program and it was held a block from where Derek roby lived And speaking of Derek, he also attended the program. So on August 2nd, this is where I just cannot handle it. It's seriously, I could see my son and my son and myself having this exact conversation. On August 2nd, Derek was ready to head out to the summer camp, but his mom wasn't ready just yet to take him. She says that she normally would walk him to the end of the driveway, but Dalton that morning was very fussy. Again, remember that's Derek's little brother. And Doreen remembers this and says, um, you know, he's not ready yet. Just, I need more time. And she's telling this to Derek. And he says, it's okay, mom. I'll go by myself. She remembers that he gave her a kiss and said, and she said, I love you. And he says, I love you, mom. And he went hopping off the sidewalk again. Literally could see this happening with my son. In fact, it does happen all the time except he doesn't go anywhere alone, like maybe out to the backyard before I do. But still, it, I am just saying it's so wild to me. I totally thought of Augie when they, when I was reading this. So Derek had only one block to go and no streets to cross. The park was on a dead-end street. It was the first time that she had ever let him go anywhere alone. That's Doreen telling us about Derek as a mother. And someone with superbly high anxiety, probably due to OCD, doesn't matter. I can only imagine, not that it's warranted, not that she should, but the guilt. I don't know that I could survive this. The first time she lets him go anywhere alone. And it's simply because her younger, the younger brother, her littlest son, 
is so fussy that she just can't leave at the moment. Ever, ever been there, you guys? Parents, ever been there? Yeah, you have. We all have. Probably multiple times a day for some of us on some days. I just want to reach out to her and squeeze her so freaking hard into the biggest hug ever. I just, I feel everything for her. Everything before that. And then when I read that, it just, oh, it, it almost kills me. It really does. It, it's physically, it hurts my heart. It just makes me it's so sad. So then they heard the family talks a lot about how Derek was so close to all of them. And they both, Dale and Doreen, agreed that if there was any way that he could have told us that he was leaving, like the earth I'm talking about, he would have tried. So what's crazy is a short time after he walked, hopped off on the sidewalk. And again, I'm going to tell you, she talks about this. She says a short time later, like pretty much right after storm clouds moved in out of nowhere. And she says that she remembers feeling something so close to like a startling panic again out of nowhere. And she swears that that's the moment that he died and that she thinks that he was letting them know. You might disagree or think that's not possible. I don't really care. As a mom, I understand this. And I also understand that there is an invisible thread of energy. It's called quantum physics, by the way. This is science. I'm not making this shit up. Um that connects people and a mother and her child. I mean, it is probably the strongest connection that there is. You feel, you might not know. Have you ever heard of those parents who wake up out of a dead sleep and they just know something bad has happened or they wake up out of dead sleep and call their child like, are you okay? Or anything like that. Or to find out that something bad did happen or to find out that they just saved their kid from something bad happening because they called just the situations are endless the variables are endless we all know some something like that happening true stories too this is one of them that panic she's feeling like something was happening and it's just wild to me because she didn't have to be there she didn't have to know what was going on but like her, the energy effect that thread was affected and that affected her because of what was happening to him full body chills by the way great full body chills that is so, it's a, It's just so, I get it. I get it. And it's also like makes me so uncomfortable because if you have anxiety, you tend to, it's amplified and you worry about times. But I'll tell you right now, you might think sometimes, especially if you have anxiety, like, oh, this is something bad or, oh, that's something bad. But when it actually happens for the first time, you know, you know that feeling, it's that gut, it's like such a deep gut feeling that you can't, nothing else can touch it. So just trust me, if you're questioning it, it's more than likely, 99.9% sure, false. Just fear, just straight up fear and nothing else. When it's so deep and so strong and you'll know. It's like an intuition, you just, you know, and I know it's, I hate when people say that. I used to hate when people say that. Like, you know when you know. No, you will though. You will know because there will be no other option. It's just that strong. Just a little pep talk for you anxiety people out there who, I, I need to talk you back from the ledge, okay? So that's what that was for. Remember that. And when you need it, come back and listen to this as a reminder that you will know when you know because it, you will know. That's how. It's just, just trust me. 
All right. Let's see. So, okay, this is where it's proven, not just scientifically, because again, it is real. Look it up. I'm not making it up. But as far as Doreen and her situation, how she felt that panic and really soon after, like probably, I think she did say five minutes in one interview, but what she felt, but didn't yet actually know, even though she did, was that, yep, five minutes after she kissed Derek goodbye, he was dead. However, the most disturbing details of the crime were never made public. So even what I'm going to tell you, like I'm going to tell you some stuff that's really not ideal um, and really sucks and it's going to be hard to get through for me and I know it's going to be hard for you, but let's stick together. We can do it. Knowing that, think about this after everything. We still, to this very day, do not know majority of the most disturbing details of the crime. I don't think, I'm pretty sure that even the parents don't know. That's how bad it is. It's bad. So, and yeah, people need to know what what happened because, again, we're talking about a 13-year-old. It's bad enough when a human does this, but a 13-year-old, there are under, there's not necessarily a reason, but we got to get to the bot. We got to figure this out. Is it possible? I don't know. I'm not sure, but I don't think it's impossible if that makes sense. I'm not saying it's fully possible, but I think that we got to at least try. Okay. Because it's 13 out of nowhere. There's, there's more, there's more to this. We just got to figure this out. Um, Okay, so his body was found just hours after everything happened, by the way. And that was in a small patch of woods that was halfway between the park where he was headed and his home. Horrible. So the way he did this wasn't just about ending his life. The way he did it was just like, it was really, 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 really messed up. So what is recalled as happening? And this is by, just so you know, this next little part is told to us by the lead investigator and his name is Charles Wood. So he says that Eric discovered and dug up one very large rock and one smaller rock and he used those to batter Derek's head. Then he went into his lunch bag, Derek's lunch bag, smashed a banana and took Derek's Kool-Aid that he actually poured. So he opened the Kool-Aid and he poured the Kool-Aid into the indentations that were made in his head from the rocks. If you're not asking it, or if you're thinking it, let me let me do the honors. What in the actual fuck? Why? Why? What and why? I mean, so and those two don't even do justice. Those two don't touch the shitstorm that's going on in my brain trying to understand what in the actual fuck. Then he sodomized Derek with a small stick that he had found. Okay, so so much of this is alarming, um, but why the I don't understand. I can I can speculate, but I don't really feel like doing that because I don't want to even touch this for too long. Um, the whole sodomizing with the stick thing, lots of killers do that. So that to me, you, there's this like tri- triad, this triangle of serial killers: the whole wetting the bed. Um, harming animals and I think it's playing with fire 
I'm at a loss for words right now that I don't have those three off the top of my head for sure. That's embarrassing. And I'm also not sure what's going on in my brain. Um, <laughs> it's going to be real fun to look back on these episodes, these quarantine episodes. And, and by that, I mean, I'm probably gonna be screaming at myself like you are right now, giving me the answers like, oh my God, I'm going to probably want to delete them all. Don't worry, I won't, but I might want to. But yeah, I feel like that's not on the triad. I know that's not. But I do know from being a true crime junkie, basically, that that's something that not every time, but it happens a lot. So that to me was, I mean, there were a lot of red flags, but that to me was one red flag that I know is a red flag because of all the other people before that have done that. So then Wood tells us that the killer, which we know is Eric, arranged Derek's body and by putting the left sneaker, which he removed, and he put it right next to Derek's right hand. And then his right sneaker had also been removed and was lying near his left hand. And it was a very posed look. It looked very obviously posed. And also, I'm curious now why the left to the right, the right to the left, and the shoes too by the hands. That's weird. To me, there's something there, right? Does anyone else feel this way? I don't think that's just random or to make it look random. I think there is something, even if Eric is not sure what it is, I think there's something there. Personal opinion, just saying. Um, okay, so <laughs> this is the part that really sucks. We're not going to get to know because people still don't know, but we do know, and this is in quotes, okay. Eric continued to deal with Derek's body because he wanted to, because he chose to. And most frighteningly, because he enjoyed it. So what else was he doing? If if they're releasing the information about the bashing his head in and pouring Kool-Aid into the indentation and then the banana and the... Uh, I, I can't help but be curious as a human what the fuck else happened, but I also don't want to know because... This is also weird already, the stuff that's known. I, I'm afraid that the stuff that's not is too much to handle. But we do know that he kept, I don't want to say playing, but messing with his body. And it also makes me think, like, because that now we know Derek is dead, like, was he enjoying that? Like, it's just so weird, you guys. Okay. Um... So speaking of enjoy, that word would actually come up again and again and again and again and again in the course of this investigation, the first time being four days after the murder when Eric walked into the police center um, to see if he could be of help in solving the crime. Everyone out there, true crime fans, you could even be a newbie. I guarantee you know this fact. A lot of killers, serial or not, either come back to the crime scene or try to talk to the cops. They want to become involved in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes the person who finds the body is the one who committed the crime. Not always, obviously, but it's that's also very much a thing. Is it a human thing? Sure. But it's, it's reserved for the humans who kill <laughs> because that's obviously where we see this happen, but it does happen all the time not every time but a lot enough to where it's a total stereotype for a reason so the police are talking um not wood anymore this now we're talking about john hibsch he was just 
not just an investigator, but he was an investigator who had enough dealings with him that he could comment on it and said that he totally enjoyed it. Eric totally enjoyed it, didn't want it to end. Um, he Okay, so like I said, he talked to him all the time. And he even remembers, he recalls like how crazy it is that he didn't have a single clue that this killer was sitting right in front of him. He, re, he actually quotes in an interview, he's looking right at me. He's very upbeat, very happy. He likes the fact that he's being talked to. So at first, Eric denies that he saw Derek, but then he quickly changes the story. He says, right across from the right, what right across the street from the open field, and that's when I saw Derek. And when he said that, it about knocked me off the chair because he is now putting himself right on top of the crime scene. I mean, you've just got to walk across an open field and you're at the scene where the murder was. So when he asks Eric what Derek was wearing, he Eric was able to describe his clothing and the fact that he had a lunch bag in his hand. He also continues to say that he said it was kind of cool, really. And then he's like bouncing around again. He's happy and he's happy because he's telling them something about the crime and he's now connected to the crime scene. It's just very disturbing which not a strong enough word at all. Um, so then John, remember John Hips, the investigator? That's who I'm talking about. John says that at that point, Eric started getting emotional when they kind of probed him further and, and they wanted to know like where you last saw him. He said that his voice started cracking and that he put his head down and that then after that, he brings his fist up to his face, you guys. And they're vibrating. His fists are vibrating a little bit. Like at, like you would if you were really emotionally upset. And he goes, you think I killed them, don't you? This whole section has me thinking, what is mentally wrong? Obviously, something. The murder, that tells us not everything. That More questions than answers. But the one answer we do have is that something's not right. Okay, can we agree on that? Now, with this little act, with the the shaking fist, I personally am very alarmed. Like, I feel like if I were in the room, I'd be clawing like a cat up the wall to get away from this kid. Just saying, I'm not saying that that I'm right about that or that it's fair, but that is what I am feeling right now, just reading about this. Um, so then at that point, Eric wants to take a break and his father brings him a glass of Kool-Aid of all things, right Seriously, you guys, this could be a fucking movie. So then John tries to continue the discussion, and but he can't because Eric grabs the red Kool-Aid and just throws it onto the ground. What? Is that because he was angry about what happened? Or what is, did he think like, oh, shit, I'm found out? I don't know. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? So... They all knew, oh, huh, okay, I didn't, I didn't quite catch this when I first did a quick little review of it, so the Kool-Aid thing, why would you do that? Okay, this might be a reason why, so everyone knew at this point that Derek, not everyone, the cops, you guys, not, not everyone, not everyone at all, only the cops knew that Derek was covered in red Kool-Aid. 
obviously, because we know that that's what the killer poured all over him in his little indentation on his head. So now the dad brings red Kool-Aid. I'm wondering, is the dad aware? Does he know? Is that why he brought red Kool-Aid? But then again, red Kool-Aid is like red Kool-Aid in the 80s, early 90s, right? Pretty common. So that, I don't want to throw the dad under the bus, but that has me suspicious of him, to be honest. So now this kid who's in there talking to them, the one who actually committed the crime, but they don't know that at the time, they're not even really suspicious of him, to be honest. They even acknowledge that in these interviews. Now he's got red, because he spilled it all over as he throws it to the ground. So now he's got it all over him. Is that to prevent being caught? Or to explain why there's Kool-Aid on him that they found on the other kid? Or is there something about the Kool-Aid that makes him so angry and did something bad happen to him? Which is actually what John wonders. He, he, so he is quoted as saying, I'm thinking this kid has seen something that's very traumatic and there's a block in there and I can't get around it. And rightfully so, John, because you're not wrong. He did see some shit. He did some shit, you know. So the next day, investigators ask Eric to get his bike and show them where he was when he saw Derek. Wood was also there, and he said that Eric was very calm and quotes that I would have had to say that he enjoyed it. He was having a good time. Okay, now that's hearsay, whatever, I get that. But it's kind of like when you're looking back on something and you're noticing things that you didn't notice at the time because you're just talking to a kid, but then you realize, whoa, that's actually kind of crazy. I just didn't realize why it was crazy. Just giving everyone benefit of the doubt. What can I say? So uh, Eric's grandfather, Red, if you remember, I talked about him a little bit earlier. He actually does say that the family knew Eric was hiding something. And here's a direct quote. In no way did we feel he had done it. So we felt that he knew something. Maybe somebody had threatened him. That's why he wouldn't tell. And that's also exactly what Eric's neighbors named John and Marlene Heskel, who were friends of their family, they believed the same thing because after the murder, Eric spent nearly every night at their home. Can you imagine doing that? Hosting a murderer, a 13-year-old murderer, after the fact, every night. I also his parents like he's close to his grandparents and these neighbors I'm not judging I'm not assuming but what's going on with the parents that they aren't involved much at all anyone I feel like that's very weird let me know if you agree (laughs) or if you know something I don't know I I haven't looked into the parents and maybe I should because they're miss they're MIA straight up MIA before the murder during and after so Red flag number uh, 79. Can we get another red flag over here? Anybody? (laughs) Um, So these neighbors, by the way, they actually talk about how Eric... Okay, this is going to just have to be a direct quote because I don't want to mess it up. And it's just too good. Only because we know now, like we know what happened, but this poor woman had no idea and she's got this kid at her house every freaking night. Here's her direct quote. Eric asked me, What would happen if it turned out to be a kid? And I said, I seriously think they would need some psychiatric help. Oh, okay. And he walked away. And then DNA testing, she said that he wanted to know what that would show. 
you guys. The bells of alarm going off in my brain, they haven't stopped, but they're getting so loud it's hard to think. (laughs) This is such a crazy case. Um, Yeah, okay. So as they always do, over time, details would gradually begin to leak out about the crime and Marlene, the same neighbor, her friend called with a new theory about the murder. She said that they, so she thought it was a kid and they don't like bananas because of whoever killed Derek squashed the banana. Um, Again, these are facts we all know, but there's so much more we don't. And then an adult would have just like thrown the banana away. They wouldn't have squashed it and made a mess. Not necessarily true, but I do understand that track of thinking and I, that she's not wrong. And she's actually not wrong, we know. But I'm just saying, like, that that's a very good observation, I, I have to admit. Um, so then Marlene, she <laughs> whether her gut was telling her something and she just didn't know or wasn't, like, connecting that that's what was happening or not, I have my own theory. But she started, she just launches into her own investigation into the murder. She went to the store, bought ice cream, nuts, syrup, and bananas, and brought it all home and asked everybody if they wanted sundaes. Well, they all did. So basically, like I said, I think she has a theory without knowing she has one. Like she has that gut feeling. Or maybe she did. I don't know. But she says that Eric said that he was going to have the nuts and syrup, but he didn't want a banana. And he and she, I think, asked him again, and he goes, no, I don't like bananas. So she called her friend back and said, Eric says that he doesn't like bananas, and now I'm scared. Okay. Yeah, you should be. I don't blame you. You're scared enough to have this instinct to go out and make Sundays because you just, you know. That's another thing I'm saying. You know when you know. Here's a great example because you wouldn't just go, you wouldn't go through all that and do all that if you didn't have such a good idea of what was actually happening and what was actual truth. So five days after he was killed, Derek was buried in his baseball uniform. And then two days later, we know the killer confesses. Family members sat Eric down and begged him to tell what he knew. (laughs) But the truth was much more terrible than they ever imagined. So Red, the grandpa, says it's still hard to believe. Something must have happened to him because that wasn't my grandson. Yeah, that or, I mean, I think so. I think that there was some underlying shit for sure. But then that trigger, but what was the trigger, you know? A couple triggers, actually. What was the trigger to make him snap like that? And what was the trigger from Derek? What did Derek do to trigger? I just, I don't know. Was it something at the same... Did they even know each other from the program? I mean, their town is only 970 people. I'm I'm sure they at least knew of each other. They're not even in the same age group, though. It's so strange. So a decade later, on June 8th, 2004, uh, this parole for Eric that everyone is so... Like the first one that's reported on, it takes place behind closed doors. So just a couple things that to leave with the Roby family has already learned in the most brutal way that nothing can be taken for granted. So they sent a letter to the parole board along with home video showing the short life of Derek Roby. Doreen says that it upsets her that they have to beg for them to keep this killer behind bars every two years. 
Her biggest worry is that she still has a 12-year-old, and that's certainly enough things to worry about with an adolescent other than the fact that there could be a killer running loose. She's She goes on to say, I don't like to say that very often because I don't want to scare Dalton, but that's the way I look at that. The same uncertainty is also on Tunney, the prosecutor's mind. Um, he's the one who convicted Eric. Will the parole board see things differently than the jury? And he actually goes on to make a really great quote that I could not have said better. In a lot of ways, it's like having the trial all over again. This uncertainty of the outcome. So true, because juries are the biggest wild card in existence. Every goddamn time, I don't care what you say, there is so, you never know. You never know what, per, I am learning that out in the wild without going to court every day or ever, to be honest. But um, I'm seeing that when I assume things about people just be, even based on their actions and their words and then they turn around and show like something out like their actual like voting for example who they vote like things like that and I'm uh, like what or their stance on certain things I've the way they act the way they talk the way they live I just assume certain things and then they go around and show me the total opposite and they're still the same person it's just wild it's something kind of like that but at the end of it all, no matter what we've talked about, at the very heart of this and at the very heart of every crime, but especially this one for him specifically, there's really one question always. Why? Why? Why did he kill? And some people say because. Like, the fact is he just chose to do something horrible. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't. I don't know that there's a better way to say it, but I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, defense attorney, we haven't talked about him yet, Kevin Bradley, says that there wasn't a choice. He states that Eric Smith suffers from a very serious mental disease, and the fact that he seemed normal afterwards shows that he is not normal. Damn, that's also a good point, right? Like, is this a tennis match? What is happening? That is so true. That's a good point. Um... He also goes on to say that at one point he turned to me and he said he did it. I lost control. And that's actually not him. I'm sorry. He did not say that. Bradley did not say that. We're talking about Tammy now, who is Eric's mom. He looked to her and said that he did it, that he lost control. She asked him why and why he did it. And he just kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. And then he cried. Well, I mean, I feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he doesn't know sometimes. Not that it makes it okay. It's just that there's so many things that we don't know that he doesn't know that the answer could be endless. There could be more than one answer. There could be a hundred. There could be none. It's very confusing, killers and murderers. It's And the crime, it's just super confusing. So speaking of that, the crying and the, and that, so I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but it, it, it's because it's just so much stuff coming at you and me. We're all in this together. The jury heard about him as a toddler and how he would actually throw temper tantrums, bang his head on the floor, how he had speech problems. He was held back at school, which that is a nightmare. Uh, that alone, on top of all this other shit that he's going through. Again, not that it makes it okay, but damn, this poor kid. And like we said, and we know, relentlessly bullied. When he asked for help with his anger, 
his adoptive father did not seem equipped to give it to him. So they didn't mention that he had an adoptive father till now. Not that that means anything, but it also is not ideal to have somebody not equipped to help you with your anger as a child. Like that's what a parent's supposed to do, but I'm not saying the parent's wrong for not being able to. It's just sad all around. Um, and actually Ted talks about when he asked for help with that anger, he said he was really upset. He was crunching his fists and shaking and told me that dad, I need help. He's, uh, Ted says, I said, hold it. When I got angry, when I was your age, I just grabbed a bag in our barn and started beating on it until I was too tired to do anything else. Um, okay. So then Ted says that he heard a door shut and he turned around to just see what was going on and saw that he was gone. Then he goes to the window and he was coming back in the door and he was calm. So he looked down, noticed his knuckles and his hands were kind of skinned up and bloody. And he asked him what happened. He said, I hit the tree a couple of times. Seems to be okay. That is so sad. He had so much anger inside it. Not again, I'm not making excuses, but when a crime is committed, not every time, but a lot of time the criminal is suffering too. And it's, I just feel like not a lot of people try to understand what they were going through. Probably because they feel guilty making it seem like it's okay. But I'm, I'm being very open. That's not, it's not okay. But it's also not okay to ignore another person hurting in my mind. So that's why I do that. Um, defense psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Herman, that we already talked about that, diagnosed him as that with the intermittent, intermittent explosive disorder, uncontrollable rage. It sounds like that's something I might have, and I'm not even joking. I'm not trying to be funny or make light of this. Literal deadly rage and anger. I feel like, huh. Okay, that's something. I'm going to put a pin on that. Seriously, I'm taking a quick little snapshot of that for later research. Um yeah, I don't know about how it's rare. That doesn't mean anything. So it's rare. That doesn't mean he doesn't have that. That It sounds quite a bit like he has that or something similar to it. Let's just agree that he at least has some anger issues. Moving on. Um, 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 so, okay, the part about how I'm telling you, like he's hurting. You got to understand he's another human that part of the trial or just basically trying to understand a crime is hard for some people, especially the people who were like the parents of the child who was killed because again, it's the argument, like all people feel anger. It doesn't make, make it right, but that's what we're saying. I don't think anyone's saying that it's right or that it's okay. They're just trying to understand why they they're okay. So everyone's asking the question why some people take it further and try to understand the reason why instead of just asking it. And I'm not saying they're better or worse. I'm just one of those people. And so I understand and I see it for that. That is exactly what is happening. And it's not wrong. It's totally fine. Um, oh, yeah. So it goes into a lot of details that we already know what happened to Derek. I don't feel the need to go over it with more color because no, um, the, but I will mention throughout the trial, some people comment on how Eric's face was eerily blank, how he showed no emotion, expressed no remorse, um, how people say they don't remember him ever saying that he was sorry. Okay. 
you don't understand. Most times, if not all, your lawyer gives you advice and kind not forces you because you can do whatever you want, but makes it very clear what you're supposed to do. He probably had directions to do exactly that because he's 13 and emotional, clearly. We're all emotional, but he's extremely emotional, as we know. If he shows anything, that could tip it over to where he can't come back from that, and that could be detrimental to his trial. So let's just keep that aside and keep your thoughts about that. Just like think about things like that, FYI. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but it's likely, you know? Uh, Let's see what else. So now we talk, okay, this next part basically talks about a lot of people who are trying to advocate for why he should be freed. Like how they relate, like this one doctor talks about how when she was younger, she had a similar situation or something like that in her anger and how she thought she was going nowhere. And, and now she's a doctor and she got the help she needed. And so I get that. Okay, cool. Um, Then there's other people talking about he should at least be studied um, and they're refusing to do that. Well, I don't think that's right. Like if he's already locked up somewhere, why not? Why wouldn't you? Why not? Maybe because they are afraid they're, they're going to feed into him, but he's locked up. Like that almost is like a pride issue. Like you don't want to give them what they want. Okay. So now we don't want to give them what they want, even though that's just words we're putting in. We don't know that that's what he wants. We don't know that he would want that for sadistic reasons, but even if he did, what you're getting out of it, what humanity is getting out of it, what science is getting out of it, psychology, is that not much more important than a game of, no, I don't want to give you what you want because you'll feel good about it? Who fucking cares? If that's going to help science, go for it. And who gives a fuck? Just saying. Let's not be children. Um, okay, so yeah, I'm just trying to wrap this up for you. There... Oh, wait, I forgot. I needed to read the letter that Eric. Okay, so Eric actually does speak up about being studied and he brings up a lot of good points. You guys feel free to look that up. I I don't have time for that today, but he comes up with a lot of really, really good points. And I am just like, I'm so here for that. Like, let's do it. Let's study. Um. I'm just going to wrap this up with a couple bit of information that just so people know. Um, a few months after the murder, the Roby family, they didn't leave the town, but they did move to a new house. Obviously one they didn't have so many memories, especially for Dalton, because that's like a double trauma because he's also a child. Um, in order to honor Derek, volunteers bulldozed the scene of the crime and put in a new ball field in memory of the cute little t-ball player, which is a, oh, so adorable. Uh, Doreen, Doreen, I don't know why I say her name like that. She quotes, a lot of people don't understand. They say that maybe we should just move on, which we have. We move on. But as life evolves, we also carry with us this huge burden of making sure that people don't forget him. Listen, Doreen, I hope you don't feel the need to explain yourself because you don't. You do you and you have every freaking right. For real. Anyone who tries to argue with that, just seriously, please don't even listen to them and give them the time of day. You're so much, please just don't do that. You're better. You're better than that. And people, don't be assholes. Leave them alone, for real. Um, so yeah, as we know, he's actually not released. The parole was denied. 
that's not I feel like I spoiled that in the beginning but I wasn't trying to make this a suspenseful episode so sorry but not and let's see what else (laughs) oh okay so the Robies want to give families like theirs more time to heal before facing the anguish of parole you guys this is amazing they fought to pass Penny's Law which lengthens the prison sentence for children who kill uh, supporting Penny Law was a proud moment, and that's a quote from Dale Roby, who sees that as a triumph for Derek. He continues with, It gave us a little meaning, more meaning. He was here for a short time, but now look at the impact his five years have had, which he was four. He wasn't even five, but I get it. He was so close to being five. So had he lived, Derek Roby would now be 16. And again, that was in, hold on. 2004 I think so yeah I'm not doing the math right now if I can't even use the proper words I am sure as shit not doing that you can do the math knock it knock yourself out um and as I've also mentioned a couple times Eric Smith his case will be reviewed every two years now I need to find real quick the letter that he wrote here it is so while he was in jail Eric wrote an apology letter to Roby's family, which he read on public television. The following is part, just a part of this letter, and it's all a direct quote, okay? I know my actions have caused a terrible loss in the Roby family, and for that I am truly sorry. I've tried to think as much as possible about what Derek will never experience. His 16th birthday, Christmas, anytime, owning his own house, graduating, going to college, getting married, his first child. If I could go back in time, I would switch places with Derek's and endure all the pain I've caused him. If it meant that he would go on living, I'd switch places, but I can't. At the end of the statement, he, Eric, states that he cannot bear the thought of walls, razor wire, and steel metal bars for the rest of his life. So that letter, it makes me tear up a little bit because... I get the sense that he truly was a child who snapped and all of those whys aside, which they're there, it's just whatever, all of that aside, he's had no, no, nothing but time to think about it. And also he was a child. So it's almost like having a mega temper tantrum, not comparing the two. I'm just trying to make this relatable. And then thinking, I regret that. Oh my God. Like you're 13. You don't have very good decision-making skills. 20-year-olds don't. 25-year-olds don't. I'm 32 and there are times I question some of my decision-making skills, to be honest. I'm not about to go murder someone. I'm just saying that's relatable, that experience. And I just get that sense that he is so truly sorry and that he really, if he could switch, he would. However, I also know that it doesn't happen a lot, but when killers, especially people who have no feelings, psychopaths, sociopaths, just the whole shebang the whole bunch of that little grouping um they're able to take on what is meant like what most people who have feelings and empathy would feel and say and do and they're able to embody that but not actually feel it and that's like I said very common but I don't get that vibe from him but that doesn't mean that I'm correct or that I'm not wrong also Um, real quick, let me get this picture. This is why this episode is titled Forever Young. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, 
but also Derek's grave, his um, headstone says, in our hearts, you will remain forever young. And for some reason, I can't even finish saying that without wanting to cry because, oh, this kid is so cute. Damn, I did really good. I just got through that entire thing without tearing up until the very end. You know what? That's a win. I'm going to count that as a win. And I'm going to go ahead and and sign off now so I can go uh, maybe ball for like 10 minutes before I have to try to go to bed. Kind of do a little venting sesh and just let it all out, which is something you guys, I'm researching these cases and all of that. I'm not complaining, by the way. But it takes a lot of emotional energy and with everything going on right now and how empathic I am, I just I just feel everybody's pain. I want everyone to feel okay. I can, I'm very sensitive. Um, it is a lot to do this every week, especially right now with everything going on. So afterwards, there's a big vent sesh, um, like a dumping, if you will. I just release a lot of tension and sometimes it takes a day or two and I think this might be one of them but I hope you enjoyed you know what I mean I'm gonna say it every time you know what I mean by that I hope I did this justice I hope you were able to keep up with me and that it all made sense and I also hope that you were able to make it through for Derek and for Eric crazy how their name how am I just now realizing that oh lord so yeah, um, that was the story of the murder of Derek Roby committed by Eric Smith in 1993. And it's terribly sad, but I, again, I hope I did this justice and that Derek's memory lives on for those who knew him and for those who loved him. I hope you guys have a good rest of your night or day or whatever it is for you, whatever day it is for you. And that you'll join me again next week for a brand new episode. See you then. Bye. Peace out. (laughs) Oh, silly boy. Peace out. (laughs) Peace out. This is a Yellow Wave production.